Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective, and today we're looking at chapters 44, 45, 46, and 47 of The Da Vinci Code. Before I get into this episode, I just wanted to thank my Patreon supporters, those patrons out there. Because of their pledges each month, I've been able to buy a new microphone. So if I sound a bit differently, that's why. Because of their support, I've been able to reinvest that into the show. So I just wanted to thank them so much. I really appreciate their support. If you want to join the ranks of the Patreon community, just go to patreon.com slash breaking down bad books and you can sign up. $3 a month will get you one new bonus episode every Friday. And I'm currently looking at The Maze Runner, which is a terrible, terrible book. But you can also access the older content, which is Divergent. Fifty Shades Darker, and 365 Days, which has another movie sequel coming out on Netflix. So excited for that. I think it's called Next Day because that series is to do with day. It started with 365 days, right? But the plot only went for like 80 days at most. And then it was called This Day. And then that plot went for at least 14 days. And now we're doing next day. And what's the bet that it's not even the next day yet from the cliffhanger that this day left on? What a stupid series of books. Ugh, love them though. Oh God, I love them. All right, well, let's get into this one. So where we left off, they were in the bank, the Zurich bank headquartered in Paris. I don't know, some bullshit. And they were like, oh no, we need a code to go with our key. And they didn't know what the code would be. They were like, oh, no one ever told us a code. Sonia, you idiot, if only you ever gave us an indication that numbers might be important. Oh, if only you told us the numbers. And then they were like, oh, wait a minute. He wrote down those 10 digits on the floor. Oh yeah, forgot about that. And it was Langdon that remembered. And he was like, Soph, Soph, the computer printout, have a look. And so we pick up chapter 44 and she says, 10 digits, Sophie said her cryptologic senses tingling as she studied the printout. I'm sorry, you're not Spider-Man. What senses are tingling? And do you really need to have your cryptologic senses tingle when you're just reading numbers on a page? She's like, oh, wait a minute, numbers. I'm sensing that there's some sort of a code on this page. Wait, what a fucking idiot. And then it says in italics, grandpere wrote his account number on the Louvre floor, exclamation mark. So that's Dan Brown just really selling it. (laughs) He's really got to make sure that us dumb readers have figured it out. 
And it, it continues. The explanation continues. It says, oh, when Sophie had first seen the Fibonacci sequence, she thought blah, blah, fucking blah, just to get her there because she's got a Sophie-centric view of the world. But now, utterly amazed, she saw the numbers had a more important meaning still. They were almost certainly the final key to opening her grandfather's mysterious safety deposit box. She's like thinking that it's got another intended meaning as well as to get her involved. Maybe it was the only intended meaning. Maybe Grand Père just wrote that on the floor and you just assumed it had something to do with you. Same with this PS. So all he wrote was PS, find Robert Langdon with a bunch of numbers and then a little anagram. And she said, oh, PS, that's me because my nickname is Princess Sophie and those are the initials of Princess Sophie. Like what a stretch that is. And then she's like, oh, and the numbers, that's to do with me as well. So the numbers were to get me involved, but also the initials were to flag it for me. Like it's not all about you, Soph. Maybe it's a bank number and maybe PS just means PS. But she says, oh, he was the master of double entendres. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you saw that in the basement, his mastery of double entendres. Um, And she says, he loved anything with multiple layers of meanings, codes within codes. So, okay, now you tell us? We've been trying to decipher his last moments. And now you tell us that he loves double entendres and codes. (laughs) And also, is he not a bit dumb to be murdered? and then hide the key in the same vicinity where he's hiding the account number. Wouldn't he think that maybe his killer could come back into the Louvre and put those two pieces together? I don't know. Like, what if Silas just waited for the Louvre gates to open up and just, like, slid on in? I suppose he couldn't do that. I I guess Grandpère knew that Silas wouldn't be able to get to him, but still, you're putting a lot of faith in Princess Sophie to figure out the clues if it was intended for her to receive those clues. So they charge forward to the ATM machine. It's like an ATM machine. They've got to punch in a code. There's a screen. And besides the keypad was a triangular hole. And it says, Sophie wasted no time inserting the shaft of her key into the hole. Oh, I bet she didn't. Oh, I bet she didn't. I bet Grand Père didn't waste any time inserting stuff into holes in that basement as well. So then it comes up being like, hey, put in your account number. And so Langdon's like, do, 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 just putting them in as written. And then it says, caution, before you strike the enter key, please check the accuracy of your account number. For your own security, if the computer does not recognize your account number, the system will automatically shut down. That, that seems wildly impractical. And even Sophie's thinking, geez, a standard ATM at least gives you three attempts. <laughs> And she goes, this was obviously no ordinary cash machine. Yeah, obviously. It's, it's not a cash machine for one. You're in the Bank of Zurich. It's a computer opened with a triangular key and a 10-digit account number connected to a conveyor belt. Yeah, obviously it's not a cash machine, Soph. So yeah, Langdon, he's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in the number. And Sophie's like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And then she's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This isn't right. And he's like, well, of course it is. Of course it is. It's 10 digits. What else would it be? (laughs) He's very confident. And she says, it's too random. And Langdon was like, oh my God, this fucking idiot. He's like, random? Banks advise people to choose pin codes at random so that nobody could guess them. He's like, of course it'll be random because it's a pin code. He doesn't get what she's saying. And she says, no, it's far too coincidental that this supposedly random account number could be rearranged to form the Fibonacci sequence. 
So she's saying like, wow, what a mighty coincidence that this number would contain the Fibonacci sequence. So, okay, but like he could have done that on purpose. Like he could have chosen his account number. I do believe he has chosen his account number. So he could have chosen anything. And she says, moreover, with my grandfather's love of symbolism and codes, it seems to follow that he would have chosen an account number that had meaning to him, something he could easily remember, something that appeared random, but was not, which is the Fibonacci sequence. So she puts in 11235813321, which are the numbers rearranged. Like, oh, fuck. I mean, this is all groundbreaking stuff. But he says, it took him an instant, but when Langdon spotted it, he knew she was right. Oh, it's the Fibonacci sequence. And then fucking Dan Brown writes it out again. But now with dashes, one, one, two, three. Like, oh my, it's printed in front of us, Dan. Like we've got it. And he's trying to explain it. Like they're the biggest geniuses. When the Fibonacci sequence was melded into a single 10 digit number, it became virtually unrecognizable. N- no, it, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. Like she recognized the Fibonacci sequence from a number sequence that was all jumbled up. You're telling me that she wouldn't be able to recognize the Fibonacci sequence when it's in a line? Unrecognizable. Oh, it's unrecognizable. What? No, it's not. And Langdon's thinking about how brilliant it is because it's easy to remember, yet seemingly random. Except wasn't Fibonacci a grandmaster of the Priory of Sion? Probably. I mean, there's your big clue. But I mean, they've convinced themselves. So they just hit enter. They're like, yep, that's it, of course. And from that moment, we get a description of the conveyor belt at work. Like, I'm sure you're all very interested in how this bank works. I know you just want to get a handle on how this conveyor belt lockbox system works. Well, okay, well, he'll tell us. So it's apparently done by robotic claws. (laughs) Like it's a giant claw machine. Um, Sliding on a double axis transport system attached to the ceiling, the claw headed off in search of the proper coordinates. Okay, sure. On the cement floor, there were hundreds of identical plastic crates in an enormous grid. It stopped over the correct spot. The claw dropped down, uh, an electric eye confirming the barcode on the box. We don't need this level of detail. We really don't. Then with computer precision, (laughs) <laughs> the claw grasped the heavy hand. I'm sorry, computer precision. Because it's a computer doing it, Dan. It grasped the heavy handle and hoisted the crate vertically. Now that's important to know, it's vertical. And then new gears engaged and the claw transported the box to the far side of the vault, coming to a stop over a stationary conveyor belt. Now it's very important that you know that it's stationary. And then gently, oh, we, oh we've got to know that it's gently. The retrieval arm then sets down the crate and retracts. Okay, and only when the arm of the claw is clear, then the conveyor belt whirls into life. So wasn't that interesting? Didn't that deserve a 500 word explanation? Meanwhile, upstairs, Sophie and Langdon are standing next to the conveyor belt, relieved when it starts to move. And Dan Brown says, standing beside the belt, they felt like weary travellers at baggage claim, (laughs) awaiting a mysterious piece of luggage whose contents were unknown. Well, usually at baggage claim, you're aware of the contents of your own luggage. In fact, it's kind of a rule of the airport that you've packed it yourself and you know what's in it. But okay, I get, I get the comparison, Dan. He's just gone into all this great detail to explain to us how it works and it gets simplified as being like a baggage claim. Oh, and, but we're not, un- we're not done with the specifics. No, 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 no. The conveyor belt then enters the room on their right 
through a narrow slit beneath a retractable door. Okay, good to know. So the metal door slides up and then the huge plastic box appears, the, the one that's already been described to us, and it emerges from the depths on the inclined conveyor belt. Who would have thought that it'd be on the conveyor belt? Thank you, Dan. I could never have drawn that connection for myself. Thank you so much. And the box was far larger than she had imagined. Okay. It looked like an air freight pet transport crate without any air holes. Oh, oh, great. Now I can visualize what a crate looks like. And like another airport reference. Did he write this chapter sitting at an airport? He was just in like the business class lounge tapping away at his little keyboard. And he was just like looking around for ideas. Because not only do we have baggage claim, we've got air pet transport crates. I mean, whoever references them, surely you'd just say, it looks like a crate. So then Langdon and Sophie are just standing there silently, like, uh, open the fucking thing, guys. What are you waiting for? The cops are outside. And then we're getting more descriptions of the crate. Sophie says that she thinks it looks like a giant toolbox. Excuse me? I thought it looked like an air freight pet transport crate without any air holes. Did, uh, back to that line. I'm sorry. It looks like an air freight pet transport crate without any air holes. Is he trying to rhyme so much? Air freight pet transport crate. I don't know. The, the rhythm of that line just really boggles me. All right. So she's opening the giant toolbox slash air freight pet transport crate. And so then she opens the lid and then they're staring down into the crate. And at first glance, Sophie thought the crate was empty. What? What the fuck? What? And then she saw something sitting at the bottom of the crate, a lone item. And I'm like, okay, so it must be a really tiny item if at first glance she can't see it. Is that where you're thinking? I'm, I, that's what I'm thinking. But then it says the polished wooden box inside the crate was about the size of a shoe box and had ornate hinges. I'm sorry, she can't, she can't see something the size of a shoe box? In a crate that already is the size of a giant toolbox. Slash air freight pet transport crate. Was she just not looking hard enough? Did she have half an eye shut? What? And so it's this box, this wooden box. It's made out of rosewood. Her grandfather's favorite wood. Like, I'm not kidding. It says rosewood, Sophie realized. Her grandfather's favorite. She hasn't spoken to the guy in like, what? 18 years, 15 years, 10 years. I don't know. A long time since she was a teenager. And yet she still remembers slash ever knew his favorite wood. His favorite wood. How's that a bit of knowledge that ever comes about? I could not even tell you my dad's favorite food, let alone my granddad's favorite timber. I couldn't tell you my mum's favorite color. Not a fucking clue. But she knows that her granddad had a soft spot for rosewood. Crazy, crazy. So then they're lifting it up and like, oh my God, it's heavy. So then she's carrying it to the table. And then both of them are staring down at this small treasure chest. So it was just chestception. And apparently the wood, the rosewood, has like a five petal rose carved into it, which is the sign for the priory for the Holy Grail. So they're like, well, it must be the Holy Grail. But then Sophie's looking at it and she's thinking, oh, the dimensions of this box, the weight of its contents, it seems to imply that the cup of Christ is in this box. And Langdon was like, oh boy. He was like getting really excited, but he's trying to tell himself like, no, no, it can't be. And she's like, mate, it's the perfect size to hold a chalice. 
But then she picks up the box. Why are they waiting? I don't know. Just pick up the fucking thing. Open the fucking thing. She hears a gurgling sound. And Langdon's like, what? There's liquid inside. And they're like, oh my God, did you just see liquid? And he's like, oh my God, liquid. Yeah, I heard liquid. So then she starts opening this box. It's just boxes on boxes. And so the object inside this box was unlike anything Langdon had ever seen. Okay, just take that in. This man's been talking so much shit to us for the past 44 chapters. He knows everything. He knows when that grail was moved out of Jerusalem. He, he knows everything. But he's never seen this object inside this box. Okay. But one thing's immediately clear to them, that this was definitely not the cup of Christ. And that's the end of the chapter. Spoiler alert, it's a cryptex. Okay. How has he never seen a cryptex before? That's my question. We'll come back to that when that's revealed. But for now, we're checking in with our favorite banker, the Maasai warrior banker who wakes up and is ready. He's storming into the room and he says, the police are blocking the street. It's going to be hard getting you out. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because he sees the box on the conveyor belt and Langdon and Sophie looking over something on the table. And he's like, holy shit, how'd they do that? How did they access that account? They just pulled a 10 digit number out of their ass and they got it right. He's like, what the what? And now Werner, in his perspective, he's looking and it seems to be a large wooden jewelry box. So everyone's got a different idea of what they're looking at. And Sophie's like, oh yeah, we had the account number after all, just playing coy. And Vernette was speechless. He's like, oh, this changes everything. And he's thinking, I have got to get them out of this bank. And he's like, God, what am I going to do? And he's like, there's only one thing I can do. And he says, Mademoiselle Nouveau. Sorry for butchering the French language. He says, Mademoiselle Nouveau. If I can get you safely out of the bank, will you be taking the item with you or returning it to the vault before you leave? And she's like, we're taking it, bud. And he goes, okay, well then, whatever the item is, I suggest you wrap it in your jacket as we move through the hallways. I would prefer nobody else see it. Who's looking? Oh, okay. So then Langdon takes his jacket off and wraps his jacket around this wooden jewelry box. And Vernet, he sends the box back on the conveyor belt, like a reverse baggage claim. So then they're heading towards the loading dock and he can see a flash of police lights. And they're like, oh no. Oh no, and Vernet, he's sweating. He's like, am I really gonna be able to pull this off? So they go into an armored truck and Vernet says, get in the cargo hold, I'll be right back. And Vernet just has conveniently found a driver's uniform jacket and cap. Where that was stored for him, I'm not too sure, but he's just got a costume change on him. And he also packs some heat. He grabs a gun and he's like, yeah, I might need this. So then he like shuts the door. So they're stuck in the back of the cargo hold with just a little light on. And he's like, shut the fuck up when I'm trying to get out of here. You guys be quiet. And then he just thinks he's going to drive out of there. He's going up the ramp, which is a fancy word for driveway. If you need to know what a driveway is, just, you know, read a few chapters back and Dan Brown will tell you. And then they've got to go through the series of gates. Remember, because there was like six fucking gates that she had to put a key in. Oh, so many fucking gates. So all of this is happening and I'm thinking, this is never going to work. Never going to work. Like as if, if they get past these cops, they must be talking to the most incompetent police person. Like seriously, how, how in the world can they ever get away with this? Wellity, wellity, wellity. He drives up to Jerome Colette. And as soon as I saw his name, I was like, oh, well, they're getting free. <laughs> I was like, oh, they've got no problems here. Is Jerome Colette's on the case. This is the guy that left a dead body in the Louvre with Louvre security 
And while there was clearly a scuffle going on in the grand gallery, he was just sitting in the office, twiddling his fucking thumbs. So yeah, they're gonna escape. So Colette's saying to Vernon, hey, what are you doing? We're, um, we're the DCPJ. You can't leave now. What's going on? We're looking for some crims. And he says, look, mate, I'm just a driver. And he tries to relate to him on a class level. And he's like, oh, if you're looking for a criminal, check the guys who run this bank. Those fucking assholes. They have so much money. They deserve to be locked up. And Colette's like, okay, well, I mean, we all bank. It was like, calm down. And so Colette's showing him a picture of Robert. I don't know why I just called him Robert then. First name basis, Robert and I. So he's showing a picture of Robert and he's like, you know this guy? And he goes, nah, I'm a doc rat. They don't let us anywhere near the clients, those assholes. He says, why don't you go in and ask the front desk? And Colette says, well, you know, the weirdest thing, they're asking for a search warrant. And Vernet's like, oh, bureaucracy, bloody administrators, don't get me started. And Colette's like, okay, well, open the truck. And he goes, open the truck? You think those schmucks trust me with keys? I don't have keys. You should see the crap wages I get paid. What a ham. He is really committing to this character. You should see the crap wages I get paid. Oh, man. But also it's indicating to me that he, as upper level management, knows that the drivers are not getting paid enough. And yet he doesn't care, but he's going to use it for his benefit in this skit. Like, okay, good to know. And so then Colette's like, are you telling me you don't have keys to your own truck? And he's like, yeah, I don't have keys to my own truck. And Colette's like, okay, well, if you say so, I believe you. Because Vernet spins this story being like, oh, the trucks get sealed with the goods and parked for like ages. And then someone else has the keys. That person drops off the keys. They don't know where the car's going. So then I come in, I don't have the keys, but then I know where I'm going. And then I get the keys. And it's only when I get the keys that I know where I'm going, but I don't know what's in the back of the truck. And Colette's like, oh, shut the fuck up. Just go, I trust you. You're good people. But then Colette says, well, do all drivers wear Rolexes? <gasps> I would never have guessed that Jerome Colette could have done the slightest bit of detective work. I t- when I tell you, I fell off my seat. I was so impressed with this guy. But then Meryl Streep over here, he's like, oh, this old thing, it's a piece of shit. He says, I bought it from a Taiwanese street vendor for 20 euro, but I'll sell it to you for 40 euro because I don't even want this hunk of crap. And also, how do you know that person was Taiwanese? Like, it feels racist to just say that they were Taiwanese. Did you check their passport before you bought the fake Rolex? I mean, it's a fake story, so obviously you didn't. But it makes me feel uncomfortable either way. But you know what? Meryl did the trick because Jerome Collette's like, I believe you. There's something about you that just makes me trust you. You've charmed me. And he even says, have a safe trip. And Vinette drives off thinking, holy fuck, what a schmuck. What a chump. But then he's like, oh my God, where am I going to take these people? Like, (laughs) where's my cargo going to (laughs) go? And so that's the end of that chapter. And we go to chapter 46 and we're back with Silas. Oh, this sad sack. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I cannot with this sad sack. He's like, oh, I killed people, but they tricked me. And I feel so bad about being tricked. Not about the killing, but I feel so bad that they tricked me. They got me, gal. So he's just been whipping the shit out of himself in his room. And he's like, I've failed the church. Even worse, I've failed the bishop. Kind of should be a red flag for yourself that you're putting the bishop above the church. You're prioritizing this one man instead of the whole church and religion as a whole. That's a warning sign that maybe you're in a cult. Maybe you're in a cult, Silas. Just sit and self-reflect. And so then Silas is flashing back to five months ago when Bishop Arangorosa went to the Vatican Observatory, which we've already had flashbacks to from the bishop's perspective. So I don't know why we need Silas chiming in. And yet, we still don't know what the fuck was told. We don't know what was said five months ago. We just get their reactions again. And Silas is saying, what? That's crazy. That's impossible. I can't accept it. And Arangorosa is saying, it's true. It's unthinkable, but true. In only six months, shit's going to go down. I'm not going to say what it is, but shit's going down. But then a month after that, which is what, four months prior to now, the clouds had parted and some light of possibility shone through. And Arangaros is like, oh my God, it's divine intervention. Silas, God has bestowed upon us an opportunity to protect the way. Our battle will take sacrifice. Will you be a soldier of God? That really escalated quickly, didn't it? Just one little trip to Rome, popping into the observatory, next minute, you're recruiting an army for Jesus. That's a fast recruitment. That's fast recruitment. Um, so we still don't know what it's all about. Okay. But then Silas has fallen to his knees and he's saying, I'm a lamb of God. Where is all this taking place? It's rare that we get a flashback without every little detail, but here we are. Arangorosa described the opportunity to him and Silas was like, shepherd me as your heart commands. 
Oh boy. It's very cultish. So then Arangorosa puts Silas in contact with the teacher. And although the teacher and Silas had never met face to face, rot row, like, ugh, so many red flags, Silas. Although he and the teacher had never met face to face, each time they spoke by phone, Silas was awed, both by the teacher's faith and the scope of his power. The teacher seemed to be a man who knew all, a man with eyes and ears in all places. You're getting catfished, Silas. You are getting catfished. Rule number one from watching that show is get them on camera. If they say, oh, I can't FaceTime, babe, my camera's not working, you dump them because they're not who they say they are. Even then, even when you have got them on cam, I mean, there's no guarantees that who you're talking to is who you're talking to. If they have that like season one RuPaul's Drag Race filter with all the Vaseline on the lens, they might not look like what you think they look like. Okay? Lots of low lighting, smudges on the camera. Yeah, you're getting catfished. You're getting catfished. And maybe meet them in person. I know that's crazy. But Silas, did you ever stop and think like, hey teacher, want to catch up for coffee? I'm in the neighborhood presumably whatever neighborhood you're in, how about I pop in and we just shoot the breeze? But nah, Silas got conned. So he doesn't know how the teacher gathered his information, but he knew that Aaron Garosa had placed enormous trust in the teacher. And so that convinced Silas to do the same. Oh boy. And so the bishop was telling Silas, do as the teacher commands you and we will be victorious. He got catfished, bro. It happens. Not to me. I mean, I've personally catfished like four or five people, but no, it happens, Silas, no shame in it. Except there's a little shame in it. Yeah, there is. But now we're back in the present and Silas is staring at the floor, worried that victory had eluded them. The teacher had been tricked. The keystone was a devious dead end and he killed a few people. No, I'm kidding. He doesn't bring that up. He doesn't care. (laughs) He does not care. Uh, he just wished he could call Bishop Arangorosa and warn him, but the teacher had removed all their lines of direct communication for their safety. I mean, how do they not know they're getting played? I mean, Silas, he's already brainwashed. So like I can sort of get on board with him being so easily manipulated because he's already manipulated. But this Bishop character, how is he not seeing these signs? He's like, oh yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah, teacher. Totally don't let me be in contact with my little best friend, Albino. Uh, I think maybe you should stop trusting this guy who won't tell you his name or appear on Zoom. Yeah, maybe, maybe flick him off. So then Silas is like, well, I'm going to call the teacher. So he calls the teacher and he says, teacher, all is lost. And he goes on and on about how they've been tricked. And then the teacher's like, "Uh, uh, ah, he says, you lose your faith too quickly. I have just received news. Most unexpected and welcome. The secret lives. Jacques Saunier transferred information before he died. I will call you soon. Our work tonight is not yet done. You're on the phone with him now. Just tell him now. But okay, that's the end of that chapter. And that's a little bit interesting because the only ones who know that Jacques Saunier has passed on information. I mean, people know about the shit written on the floor and that, but really it's just Sophie and Langdon and now this Vernet guy. And when did he have time to go and text the teacher being like, oh, by the way, they opened the vault. That's what I think Dan Brown's trying to get us to think. There might be another explanation. And I, and I think that because I've seen the movie and stuff, but yeah, 
cute little cliffhanger there. But really, other than that, nothing of a chapter. We could have just had those last three paragraphs and that could be the chapter, but no. I digress, let's move on. So we go to chapter 47 and they're in the cargo hold. And of course, Langdon, he has a character flaw and that's his claustrophobia. So he's like, oh no. Oh, I'm in a confined space. Jeez Louise, this sucks. But he's like kind of not crumbling. Like he's holding up okay. Put him in an elevator, scared fucking shitless. But a moving cargo hold of an armored truck, well, you know, it's not great, but he's doing okay. What's the difference, I wonder? And isn't it all because he got trapped down a well or he fell down a well or something? (laughs) I don't see the link between a well and an elevator when there's no link between a well and a cargo hold. Really, it's the dumbest book on earth. We're splitting hairs. Okay, so Langdon's wondering like, huh, wonder where we are, wonder where we are. And he's just getting a stiff leg. That's his primary concern. And Sophie's like, I think we're on the highway. Like, oh, okay, thank you, Sherlock. And so then Dan Brown tells us that the truck, after an unnerving pause atop the bank ramp. So now like after he described to us what a driveway is, he's just committed to just calling it a bank ramp, a bank ramp. They then moved left and right down a few streets and now they're accelerating to what felt like top speed. So that, that is what led them to believe that they are on the freeway. We couldn't have just had the two characters agree that they might be on a freeway or a highway. We had to get their evidence because that's important. And so then Langdon's thinking, well, I may as well look at this box. Why were you not looking at the box previously? You've been sitting down long enough to get all stiff. You got a dead leg. Why were you not looking at the box? So then he unwraps his jacket. He, he pulls out the box and then Sophie's like, oh, the box. And she shifts her position to get a good look at the box. And in contrast to the warm colors of the rosewood box, the inlaid rose had been crafted of a pale wood, probably ash, which shone clearly in the dim light. Now, ash wood is Grandpa's second favorite wood. He does tend to prefer a pale wood when not having his favorite rose wood, of course. Who would have thought we'd learned so much about wood? Driveways and wood. And Sophie's like, okay, open it. Like, why have they not opened it? And he takes a deep breath. He's like, oh my God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to open up the Holy Grail. Oh, he's like, stick a fork in me. I'm done. And I'm not kidding. He says Langdon had harbored several fantasies about what they might find inside this box. Like, um, calm down. Like, are you getting wood from this wooden box? But then they open it and nestled snugly inside the box's heavily padded interior of crimson silk. Jesus Christ. Lay an object Langdon could not even begin to comprehend. He can't, he can't even comprehend it. He can't even comprehend it. He's never seen anything ever before that looks like this. Now he's bamboozled and baffled and gooped and gagged and agog and aghast by this cryptex. He can't even comprehend. So crafted of polished white marble, it was a stone cylinder approximately the dimensions of a tennis ball can, which is quite big. I think the movie shrunk it a little bit because the tennis ball can, I mean, that's quite big. The cylinders seem to have been assembled in many pieces. Six donut-sized discs of marble had been stacked and affixed to one another within a delicate brass framework. Donut-sized discs. He's really giving us a lot of size chart comparisons, isn't he? He's like, if, if you can't visualize a tennis ball can, visualize six donuts stacked together. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could have just said a big cylinder, but no, this is, this is helpful. I know what six donuts looks like. Lord knows. My waistline knows. 
And then he's giving us another bloody example. He says, it looks like some kind of tubular, multi-wheeled kaleidoscope. It's a cylinder. Okay, thank you. And each end of the cylinder was affixed with an end cap, making it impossible to see what's inside. And he knows the cylinder's hollow because he heard liquid sloshing around in there. So on those six little discs, each one was carved with the same unlikely series of letters, the entire alphabet. Okay, why is he describing the alphabet as an unlikely series of letters? It's actually the most likely series of letters. If, if I had to put letters in a series at all, you can bet I'd probably put the alphabet down. Like what, what? It had been carved carefully with the same unlikely series of letters, the entire alphabet. How's that fucking unlikely? And the leaded cylinder reminded Langdon of one of his childhood toys. Another comparison, a rod threaded with leaded tumblers that could be rotated to spell different words. Okay. I mean, people have used padlocks and bike locks and just locks before. I think people understand the concept of a lock, but we, we, we get a whole explanation. Sophie's like, it's amazing, isn't it? And, and he goes, I don't know. What the hell is it? In all of my symbolical dealings, I've written books and books on how to crack codes. I've never heard of a cryptex. How? How have you not? And Sophie says, oh, my grandfather used to craft these as a hobby. They were invented by Leonardo da Vinci. And then even in the diffuse light, Sophie could see Langdon's surprise. He's like, what, da Vinci? I mean, yeah, you just gave us a five fucking hour lecture on da Vinci. How do you not know what the cryptex is, bud? I thought you studied the motherfucker. But he's muttering. He's like, oh, da Vinci? And he's looking at the canister being like, hmm, I don't think so. And she goes, it's called a cryptex. According to my grandfather, the blueprints came from one of da Vinci's secret diaries. Can't have been that secret, doll. Can't have been that secret. And he says, what's it for? To lock shit up? Like, she says, it's a vault for storing secret information. And his eyes widened further. How does he not know what this is? And she explains that recreating models of da Vinci's inventions was one of her grandfather's best loved hobbies. Oh God, of course it was. Oh, he loved anagrams. He loved making da Vinci's inventions and he loved written around in basements. I mean, what a guy. Quite the list of hobbies. She says, <laughs> a talented craftsman who spent hours in his wood and metal shop Jacques Saunier enjoyed imitating master craftsmen, Fabergé, assorted artisans, and the less artistic but far more practical Leonardo da Vinci. Why are we reading da Vinci for being less artistic? He, he painted the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. I wouldn't call him less artistic than Fabergé. I, I, well, what do I know? I'm not the art historian. That's Sophie, apparently. So then we get 8 million paragraphs about da Vinci's inventions. He did a lot of blueprints, didn't make them all. Saunier made that French knight, that medieval knight statue that's on his desk in the Louvre. I mean, a call back to that, that was a da Vinci invention that he made. Okay, that's, that's great to know, great to know. And that knight that's sitting on his desk, Sophie believed, was the most beautiful object her grandfather had ever built. That was until she had seen the cryptex in this rosewood box. How does she know he made it? I mean, this cryptex could have been passed down from da Vinci himself. What? She just assumes Sonier did it with all of his free time? And Langdon's eyes had never left the box. And he says, I've never heard of a cryptex. And Sophie wasn't surprised. She's like, oh yeah, of course you haven't. It's a secret. Um, 
Why would you not be surprised that this man who's just told you all about the Holy Grail, all about this secret history of Da Vinci, she's not surprised that he's never heard of a cryptex? I'm surprised. And she's like, yeah, a lot of Da Vinci's inventions had never been studied or named. Maybe it was my grandfather who actually came up with the term cryptex. She is giving her grandfather so much fucking credit. This man, she is just attributing everything to him. She says, ah, the cryptex, it's an apt title for this device. It uses the science of cryptology to protect information written on the contained scroll or codex. Crypt, cryptology, codex, cryptex. Oh, it's brilliant. Oh, it's so fucking brilliant. She says, Da Vinci had been a cryptology pioneer. I thought she knew nothing of Da Vinci. So then Sophie's explaining to Langdon that the cryptex had been Da Vinci's solution to the dilemma of sending secure messages over long distances. Pretty self-explanatory, right? But no, 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 we get the explanation. So in an era without telephones or email, anyone wanting to convey private information to someone far away had no option but to write it down and then trust a messenger to carry the letter. What? They should teach this in schools. That's crazy. But if a messenger suspected that the letter might contain valuable information, they might make more money selling it. So Da Vinci, he wanted to come up with a mechanical solution. The Cryptex, a portable container that could safeguard letters, maps, diagrams, anything at all. And once the information was sealed inside the Cryptex, only the individual with the proper password could access it. How you gave that person who's living across the world the proper password, I'm not too sure. But also like, why is a Cryptex necessary in this scenario? Was Sonia anticipating being killed in the Louvre eventually and having to devise a scavenger hunt? It was already in a bank vault. Do we really need this extra layer of protection? Do any of these hoops need to be jumped through? You're not protecting the secret from anyone because you haven't told anyone about your bank account number. So it's all a moot point. Has he just created this little cryptex for fun? And she says, we require a password. And she's pointing at the lettered dials that unlikely series of letters known as the alphabet. She says a cryptex works much like a bicycle combination lock. If you align the, so now she's got to tell us how a bike lock works. Are you fucking shitting me? If you align the dials in the proper position, the lock slides open. Oh, okay. Wow, who would have thunk? She says this cryptex has five lettered dials. When you rotate them to their proper sequence, the tumbler's inside and the entire cylinder slides apart. Okay, great. Although it's interesting that there's five lettered dials, but we were told that there's six cylinders. So I don't know what the six cylinder does. Maybe it's just there to look pretty. And so she says, yeah. And then once the cylinder opens, there's a hollow central compartment, which can hold a scroll of paper. And Langdon looked incredulous. He's like, what, what? He says, and your grandfather built these? And she's like, yeah. She says he used to hide my birthday cards in them. And he goes, that's a lot of work for a card. Oh, not one for sentimentality, is he? And he says, well, why not just pry it apart or smash it? And she says, oh no, Da Vinci was too smart for that. She's the world's most preeminent Da Vinci scholar. She says, he designed the cryptex so that if you try to force it open, the information self-destructs. Why? Why? Maybe just don't send secrets abroad. Maybe if you want to tell someone something, if it's that important, just go over and fucking tell them. And then they have a discussion about papyrus. So it's written on papyrus, just 
it's a piece of paper that existed before paper existed. We're all on the same page on what papyrus is. Okay, so there's papyrus in there and also a vial of vinegar because the vinegar can, I don't know, dissolve the papyrus. Do we care? So they can't smash it or bump it too hard because then the vinegar will release and, and break the papyrus. Okay. I thought, I thought we were clear on it, but she's got to just, just got to really remind us. And she says, as you can see, the only way to access the information inside is to know the proper five letter password. <sighs> we, we kind of figured that. I think we figured that. She says, and with five dials, each with 26 letters, that's 26 to the fifth power. That's approximately 12 million possibilities. <gasps> and yet you already know that your granddad loves anagrams and codes. So it's, it's going to be a word. It's not just going to be like F-G-T-I-X. It's going to be a word that makes sense. And because it's the Da Vinci Code, it's going to be in English. So I don't really think there's 12 million possibilities. And Langdon says, well, what do you think's inside? He's just turned into the biggest idiot. For once, it's not him giving a lecture. And he sounds like one of the dumb college students that he's normally lecturing to. And she says, whatever it is, my grandfather obviously wanted very badly to keep it secret. I don't think he did actually, because he's handing out clues to you to come and open it. If he wanted to keep it secret, why'd he write it down and shove it in a cryptex? Why'd he do any of this, Sophie? And then she, I think she just wants to stop talking for a bit. So she asks Robert a question. She just throws him a little throwaway question, not really caring about the answer, just so she can get some time alone. And she says, wait a minute. Did you say earlier that the rose is a symbol for the grail? And he's off. That's all he needed. And he's like, yes. In priory symbolism, the rose and the grail are synonymous. And she says, well, that's strange. My grandfather always told me that the rose meant secrecy. Uh, I don't know. That's the case. She says he used to hang a rose on his office door when he was having a confidential phone call and didn't want her to disturb him. He was rooting around in there. He wasn't on a phone call, doll. He was just trying to class up the place and not put like a, a necktie on the door handle. He didn't want to put a little do not disturb sign up there being like, I'm fucking someone in here. But we know that Sonia, he liked to get his dick wet. And so the rose did not mean he was having a private conversation. It meant stay the hell out, PS. And Langdon, of course, he's got to be the smartest person in the room. He's like, of course, the Romans hung a rose over meetings to indicate that the meeting was confidential. Attendees understood that whatever was said under the rose or sub rosa had to remain a secret. He's really got a one-upper, doesn't he? (laughs) She says one fucking thing. And he's like, actually, yes, that has its history, its roots in Roman Empire. It's like, can you just calm down and shut up for once, Robert? And you'd think that would be all. He's done enough mansplaining, but then no. Langdon quickly explained that the Rose's overtone of secrecy was not the only reason that the Priory used it as the symbol for fa 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 Who cares? Somehow the Rose is linked to womanhood and the feminine chalice and, and something, 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 something. So it's all got to do with Roses and the sacred feminine. Big surprise. And then he, he trails off, which must have been lovely for Soph. But then he's like, sub Rosa. And then he's looking at the Rosewood box and he's like, wait a minute. It can't be. And she says, what? And he says, under the sign of the Rose, this cryptex, I think I know what it is. And that's the end of the chapter. I was like, you think you know what it is? It's a fucking cryptex. She just spent 20 minutes telling you what a cryptex is. But I don't know. He's gotten some sort of brainwave. 
Ah, but he's not feeling us in until next time. So, oh my God. Keep yourselves in suspense. So I'll see you guys next week. Au revoir. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.